can never get enough of our intro. <laughs> hey, security peeps. It is I am Renee Small, cybersecurity super recruiter, helping awesome leaders hire great talent. And it is CISO Thursdays today. Hey, everyone. So uh, we are excited. We want to get started right away. Before I get into introducing my co-host and our awesome, awesome, awesome guest for today, please subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Please subscribe and make sure that you are connecting with us on YouTube. Um, we also have a Breaking Into Cybersecurity LinkedIn page, right, Chris? Chris will jump in and talk about that in a few. We have a Breaking Into Cyber LinkedIn page. We're going to be streaming from that page too, so we're going to be pretty much getting everywhere. Um, so please make sure to do that. And when you're listening without video, um, make sure you listen to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast channel. Anything else, Chris? Uh, no, uh, you hit it all there. Um. <laughs> okay, excellent. All right. My co-host, Chris Fuller. Hey, everyone. Uh, just happy to be here. Uh, we, we have Adrian on. So I know he has several uh, passionate ideas that we wanted to talk about that hits the heart of what this podcast was created for. So I really wanted to bring him on and have a spirited conversation. Um, so what, what, without further ado, Adrian. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I think if you stay long enough in an industry, I'm, I'm sure we're not special. You know, all, all you have are passionate opinions on things, very strong opinions on things. So, uh, yeah, won't, won't be an issue there. Did you want me to give some background or? Uh, yeah, let, yeah let, the, let, let our audience know who you are if they might not have been familiar. All right. So, so. Um, I guess I'll start with the present. Um, I'm currently the host of the Enterprise Security Weekly podcast over with the Security Weekly crew. Uh, Paul Asadorian is my boss. And my other job there is I test cybersecurity products, you know, to see which ones are worth using and which ones are, you know, not. <laughs> <laughs> There's, uh, I felt like it was a gap in the industry. I mean, you see a lot of antivirus testing and stuff like that, but not a lot of like, how many people do I need to run this tool? Like, you know, are we going to be up and running in a day? Or, you know, is this an 18-month project? Like, you know, like, like maybe deploying a, a SIM or something very complex. Um, so, yeah, it's something I've been wanting to do for, for a long time in my career. But I got uh, pretty humble beginnings. Um, never finished school. Wasn't sure that I wanted to do computers for a career. So my my fiance at the time convinced me to just drop out of school and try it. So uh, did uh, tech support back in the days when uh, when we did dial up internet. You know, so that that was that was a huge lesson in in patience. You know, anybody from all walks of life calling you on the phone to say my internet's not working. Now, and you do your best to help them, but they have to hang up that phone to then try anything you tried to help them with. And almost guaranteed, you know, in a large call center not to get you back. So they're dependent on you taking good notes if whatever you suggested or had them do didn't get them online. Uh, now they're, you know, they're going to talk to somebody else in 20 minutes, you know, after they they wait through the, the hold times and everything. So very... Uh, the t probably one of the toughest jobs I ever did. You know, I think 
each of those calls are exhausting because in your mind, you're, you're walking them through a screen that you can't see. You know, like like there was no like like uh, let me connect to your desktop or anything like that. You know, it was it was all like you walk along with your system. We would actually have a Mac back in the corner where you could run off with your wireless headset and or I think you'd actually transfer your call. I don't think we had wireless headsets over to the Mac so that you could walk them through. But, you know, most of the time you're just doing it from memory. So six calls in a row of that and, and you're just done, you know, like exhausting, mentally exhausting, emotionally exhausting. Sometimes you'd have like a husband and wife both on the same call and they'd be arguing with each other. You know, like the first 20 minutes of the call would be them just blaming each other for the modem not working. So that is hilarious. Um, what year was this? Uh, this this would uh, late I 90s, early 2000s. <laughs> yeah, late 90s, early I mean... 2000s. <laughs> I started doing DSL. It was right when broadband started coming out. Okay. Is, is when I was doing internet tech support. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and, and thank goodness for that because modems were hard. <laughs> so, so what got you into security? Yeah. So... Um, you know, a good friend of mine. So, so mostly, you know, my parents buying me a computer for college. You know, it was the first time I had a computer that was mine, that I could install anything on it I wanted. I could tear it apart, you know, put it back together, upgrade it, and, and I did all of those things. Like uh, my computer that that was bought for me for college was way more interesting than college. Um, so that, that, that kind of started me down that path. I, I wanted to know everything about computers, you know, from the hardware to the software, uh, you know, to, you know, and back then, you know, you could read the internet, you know, like the whole thing, like there wasn't that much on there. So the stuff that was on there was very geeky, went very deep, you know, so there were hacker zines and stuff like that. Um, you know, if you just explored the internet, ordinary people, you know, weren't posting a ton of stuff on the internet back then. So it was mostly people who were into computers. Uh, you know, so that kind of started me down that path. And a good friend of mine got me into my first enterprise gig. Um, and I was reporting to him initially. You know, he knew I had the skills, you know, because we worked on computer stuff on projects on the side. Uh, so I was very lucky for that to have uh, a friend. And even today, I, I, I still think that's one of the best ways to, to get a job, you know, is to, is to know people, you know, and for, for people to know you as a, as a worker by reputation. And um, yeah, so got me in and uh, I had a number of great mentors starting out. Uh, it just happened to be a credit card processor, you know, so great place to learn security. Uh, though I, I did start out on the IT side, uh, and I did IT uh, work principally for, for the first four years, though I, I was the main person doing incident response from the very start because they only had one person in security, and he didn't know anything about doing incident response, so it kind of he was more of a managerial type, so it kind of fell to me. I, I, I love the transition from IT to to security. I mean, I started in the help desk as well, but um, I think your help desk was a totally different kind of help desk, um, a lot more complex because when I started, we at least had screen shares um, yeah. <laughs> that, that we could help people through, or we had to walk up behind them. Um, but right. you, so, you know, yeah, help desk within a company, that's a lot easier than just like general public. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But um yeah, so I worked my way up to security in that job. Um, 
you know, I was third, fourth uh, hire in security. So they let me do anything and everything I wanted to do. And, and I did. <laughs> wow, <laughs> you know, nice. I, I, you know, I did my my best to to burn myself out in that job, but it was all it was all self imposed. Learned a, a lot of good stuff. I was young, so you know, sixty eighty hour weeks wasn't wasn't a huge deal for me back then. Uh, I didn't need naps as much as I do now. And um, after that, I I, I got kind of sick of the same problems I couldn't solve there, so I moved into consulting. I was a PCI QSA, which was kind of natural coming out of a credit card processor and a pen tester. You know, I always wanted to be a pen tester, so it was. Uh, you know, when they asked me if I would mind doing some PCI work on the side, of course I said sure because I really wanted that pen tester job. You know, and of <laughs> course once I get in there, I, I think at one point working for that consulting firm, I was the only QSA there. So I, I ended up doing a lot more PCI work than than pen testing, but still, uh, it was amazing when I got to do uh, pen testing stuff. Adrian, can you explain to everyone what is a PCI QSA for the for the folks on here that are breaking into security that have never yeah. heard that? And the folks who are in security and never heard what that is. <laughs> so the, the payment card industry data security standards, um, I hope I got all that right. Uh, Jeff Mann will correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, but um, any... Any company processing more than a million credit cards a year, and, and you know the rules are, you know you you might do under that and still have to have to have a QSA come out. But a QSA is basically an auditor that comes out and checks and makes sure you do everything that's in the standard. There's 300 plus requirements in there that you have to meet, and if you do that many transactions, somebody's going to come out once a year and check that you're actually doing it. They're going to ask you for evidence. You know, they're going to look at log files. Uh, you're going to send them screenshots, you know, showing that any virus is installed and running on, on all the systems it's supposed to be, stuff like that. Um, and uh, at the end of that, you get a report on compliance, a rock that, that shows that you've done everything. If you didn't, you know, you, you have to do some remediation. You know, maybe you have to extend your deadline or something like that. Uh, it's a very stressful process uh, for for large for a lot of large companies that have to be PCI compliant. And technically, anybody who takes a credit takes credit cards periods has ha, has to be PCI compliant. But the vast majority of merchants out there are small businesses, so they self-assess. They do what what's called a self-assessment questionnaire, and they just check all the boxes. Said, "Yeah, I'm good." <laughs> <laughs> but of, of course, there's less exposure there. You know, like cyber criminals aren't going to target. A coffee shop when they could target a target right well, let's talk about the the shiny pen tester dream that you had that so many coming into this industry they, they might know one of two roles a sock analyst or a pen tester yeah um, exactly. <laughs> so um like why why the pen tester and do you find that those two roles are even remotely entry-level type roles yeah, so you know, pen tester, you know, definitely, I I would say no. I mean, it it depends on how your pen testing firm runs. So pen testing is a great opportunity uh, to build kind of that junior pipeline. You know, have apprenticeships, uh, and we did a lot of that. We had interns at the the firm that I worked for um, that would do you know the equivalent of ride-alongs you know with with the pen tests and we'd explain what we're doing why we're doing it so we get to explain the thinking behind uh, doing a pen test and i think one of the easiest traps you fall into 
like like I remember having folks saying, you know, okay, I, I broke into the database. Now what? You know, they don't know SQL. They don't know any any SQL query language, anything like that. Um, they don't know the structure of a database. They may not, not even comprehend the idea of what a database is and what might be in it and, and how to look through it. You know, so starting out definitely for the first 10 years, for the first half of my career, I, I was very solidly on team. No, you've got to get an IT job first before going into security, mm-hmm. you know, because security is very much a second layer uh, job, a very, uh, a second layer role. Like th- there's no security without something else underneath it. You know, there's application security, database security, network security. Like if you don't understand applications, networks, or databases, you're going to get lost real quick, you know, or at the very least, you're going to have a hard time having a conversation with the developer, the database administrator, or the network administrator. And they're not going to have respect for you. You know, they're not going to give you the time of day. You know, they're, they're going to be um, at the very least irritated that you're telling them what to do and you don't understand what you're asking. You know, so that's, um, there's kind of a social aspect of it as well as the technical side of things. You know, it's much easier to build that rapport if you've been in their shoes, if you've done that job. Um, or even if if you if you were a Windows admin uh, for four years talking to a network administrator, at least you've done some kind of admin job. Like, like you understand maybe not the network pieces, but you, you understand the grind that they go through on, on a day-to-day basis, the challenges they have, the constraints they have. You, there's a better chance you're going to understand when you're asking a whole lot versus something very simple. Absolutely. And um, sorry, Renee, go ahead. No, I I said you're absolutely right. Anytime someone goes into a role and and they don't have the the baseline understanding, it's just going to be, to your point, not get respected, all of that. Because you don't know, you don't know what the the shoes that the person is sitting in. So, um, so you said for the first 10 years, you thought that way, but you've changed your mind, I'm assuming. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, so I, I, I kind of started changing my mind because socks weren't really a thing back then. Knocks mm-hmm. definitely were. Yes. So when I started out, we had a knock uh, credit card processor. So we were pulling in four and a half million credit card transactions a day. You better believe there was a knock and somebody making sure the network never went down. Um, but sock, not really. You know, and, and and when that started to come around, I, I started to say, okay, you know, yeah, maybe there are some entry level fields now, you know, that makes sense for people to get into. Pen testing is definitely the one that boggles my mind. Like you need to be a serious expert on the IT tech side of the house, you know, before you can even think about hacking some of that stuff and have a full appreciation of what you might be breaking or, or you know, the, the, you know, the, the outcome of your actions. Um, I, so I, you, I was talking, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. What do you think about the, I mean, they have these, all these various boot camps, and then obviously the, um, the uh, places that say they, that they are looking for entry level or junior level mm-hmm. uh, pen testers, what would, how would that work then? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, um, it's easy to think that 
this is the right way to do it because that's the way everybody's doing it. And, you know, I think that's kind of what happened here is, you know, the certifications, the training resources uh, emerged because there was a market for it, because there was demand for it. And companies started hiring uh, those roles because there were certifications for those roles. You know, so it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where we didn't intentionally design it that way. It just kind of happened that way. And, and, and we do have to, we have to remember security is a very young field and it's probably good that we often revisit these assumptions that, you know, pen testing should be something somebody's learning starting out, you know, revisit it and say, does that really make sense? You know, is this really giving, is the pen test in general, even giving companies a, a good value, mm. you know, is, is that, should that be one of the most common types of uh, uh, consulting uh, gigs that companies buy. And, and honestly, I think, no, I think most companies don't need somebody to come in and break stuff to tell them that they're not even close to where they should be. I think what most companies need where, where they run into issues is they need somebody to tell them how to fix it. You know, kind of find the, anytime we look at a breach, if I study a breach, the root causes are all in process and in, in mm -hmm. people in process, you know, it's not, because you forgot to patch something or because uh, you didn't own enough shiny security tools. It, it's because the, you know, you, you just don't have good process around things. Right. I, I know everyone. I was going to say, I know everyone points to Equifax for not patching that, but when you dig down deeper, it, it really was the people in process, A, the communication met method to say that you need patching and who needs to read those communications, as well as the follow through to make sure that whoever has those assets really did do the patching and there's none of that process there. So of course, something went unpatched. And a lot of organizations don't have that change management under control. Yeah, that I, I identified 25 issues in the Equifax breach that, that uh, contributed to that failure. And, um, and yeah, they, they were, I don't think there was a, sick, a single technical piece that failed. It was all people in process. I used to do um, a threat brief for my, the CISO that I worked for ages ago. And what was fascinating to me when I saw it, when I actually discovered that it was heavily, when it came to breaches, um, so heavy people in process, because I used to put that, I would have to, my, one of my responsibilities was putting a deck together every week and talking about the breaches that impacted the financial services industry. And every single one, it, it was tied to people. Mm -hmm. It was tied to, you know, people process every single time. And I was just, as an HR person coming into security, yeah. I was just like, what? <laughs> this yeah. doesn't make any sense. And, and, and a lot of the people ones, I, I think, actually are process it's ones. Process. Like, it, it's easy to blame it on the intern yeah. for coming up with a bad password. But right, who put course. them in that position <laughs> to where they can even choose a bad one it's in the, the first place? It's, it's the process. It's always the process. You can't it's blame the intern the for that. Or anybody. But, well, you could blame certain levels. But yes, yeah. agreed. Okay, a couple comments here. Steve Upshaw says, those are great points. This was earlier, um, Adrian, when you were making some points. Um, Zoe, our dear friend Zoe, she's always here. Hi, Zoe. Zoe just recently. I love like, that you have regulars. Oh, my God. I love them. So Zoe recently, um, she's been listening for 
at least a year, I feel like, um, and always comes on. And she just let us know a few weeks ago that she got her first IT job. So Zoe, let us know how the IT job is going, because I know a lot of folks here have been looking for a long time. Um, so Mike, who's <laughs> behind the shadow, says, I attest that I am secure. That's when you said that people self- <laughs> Yeah, self-attestation, yeah. Self exactly. Um, I think this is Mike again. I'm not sure. Well said, security is better understood in practice when you, you've got a good understanding of what you're charged to secure. Very, very true. So a, a good you know, anecdote on that. I remember hiring a guy, and this was back when degree programs uh, first came out for, for security. And this was one of the first um, resumes I'd ever seen with any kind of cybersecurity degree attached to it. And it was a, uh, a uh, forensics and investigation uh, degree and I hired him because, you know, one of the many hats I was wearing is I was chief incident responder. I was like, this is great. Like this guy will be able to do a much better job than I've been doing at incident response. And I can pass that, that hat to him. And I found that really what he learned in getting that degree was how to use a tool, you know, like, like they, they used uh, access data FTK. So knew how to load up an image, knew how to use all the features of this tool but when I handed him an investigation, no idea whatsoever how to run an investigation. You know, so he loads the disk image in and does a search for for password. <laughs> like, why did you search for password? And he's like, I don't know. Yeah, you know, just just no idea of how to piece together. Uh, you know, they 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 weren't teaching. I don't know if that's changed today, but they weren't teaching any investigative skills. They were just teaching you how to use the software. You know, and they, again, you know, that that's just, um, you know, I, I think uh, another good point there, you, you got to understand, you know, the thinking behind security, you know, to be able to put any of these tools to use. For sure. So Aaron says, many of these companies don't have the foundational IT governance policy standards and procedures. If they do, they're not followed or even reviewed through a life cycle process. I think a lot of companies do have it depending on the size of the company, but I agree with that second statement. <laughs> well, there, there's a lot of policy that just kind of exists because somebody said there needs to be policy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a very different thing to have policy that's actively, you know, evolving with needs and threats and things like that. You know, it, I, there's so many companies, you know, where you go in there, nobody knows what's in the acceptable use policy. Nobody's following any of that. You know, or the policy you know, makes certain things painful, so everybody knows how to get around them. You know, and and that's, you know, policy for compliance versus, you know, policy for security. And uh, you know, absolutely, compliance and security can can kind of work together there, you know, to to achieve security goals. But um, yeah, a lot a lot of policy ju exists just for the sake of of compliance because they were told they needed it. Right. I, I mean, the most probably the most common place, like for PCI, like there are companies that specialize in just, you know, pay us whatever a thousand dollars and you can download this set of policy templates, you know, and, and like people won't even take time to find replace their company name and the policy templates and the auditor comes in. It's just like Acme, Acme acceptable use policy. Hilarious. I, I wanted to go back to an earlier point that you mentioned. Um, Adrian, in regards to the gap between the individual that ha <clears throat> had the certification versus 
what you were looking for as a hiring manager. What are some of the things in your point of view that we could do to help close that gap and to help better prepare the pipeline of talent coming through uh, to be ready for the workforce? Yeah, so the first part of that, um, you know, and, and coming through through telling my own story of, of how my career has progressed, you know, after I was a consultant, I went back to the enterprise for a little bit for, for a CISO role. And, um, and I thought that was, you know, that was the only career path in security, I thought, you know, it was either, you know, you could stay a pen tester forever, or you go on that CISO path. Um, and I realized I could write for the industry uh, for a living. So I became an industry analyst instead. And um, to get that job, I had to write two full pieces in, in the style, you know, that uh, the most common style of piece that, that they wrote. One was a spotlight report, which is about trends in the industry. And the other was an impact report uh, at 451 Research was the company. The impact reports uh, like a highlight on a company. And um, I thought, man, this is a great way to hire people. Like you don't hire them and then hope they have the skills. Like you're actually testing their skills before you hire them. Uh, and actually, even before this, when I was hiring pen testers, uh, our first full-time pen testers back at the credit card processor, uh, that's how I hired them. Is I actually set up a system for them to do a pen test on, you know, and I pointed the applicants to it. And only one of them actually did the pen test and turned in uh, a report, wrote, wrote a report and turned it in. Uh, another one uh, did the pen test and sent the results via an email and the rest of them didn't, didn't even, didn't even try. So like you very quickly, we knew who the top candidate was there. Um, and I've seen the argument, like, like a lot of people, like if you're gonna, you know, submit your resume to a dozen places at once, you know, this, this approach of doing a practical test, uh, maybe isn't the, isn't the best way to go. Uh, it doesn't work for some people, but then again, like, you know, how sure do you want to be, you know, when, when you do that hire that they have the actual skills that you need. Do you, do you yeah. feel that having that physical or that requirement disenfranchises those that might not have had access to the education or the technology at the time? Um, I don't know. It's pretty easy to, you know, that's one of the ways that I built my own skills was, you know, building a lab at my house, you know, I, I just using whatever broken computers people would give me hand-me-downs. Like, I, I think I was 12 years into my career before I ever bought a new computer for myself. Um, you know, that computer I was given in college lasted a long time, had a long <laughs> life. Um, and I worked at CompUSA for a while, you know, so I, I, I bought a bunch of stuff, you know, with my employee discount at CompUSA. Uh, and then with access to the internet, you know, and the free resources out there, you know, it, it's, if you've got internet, you know, it, it's, it's pretty hard not to have the resources you need to at least teach yourself. And, and that is one of the things we look for, you know, it, because security is so new and it's constantly changing, you know, the, the ability to go out and, and, uh, self-educate, you know, is, is, is pretty important. Um, I, I guess the other point. I'll make is that some of the certifications that do kind of have that practical testing component, you know, like the, the OSCE uh, or OSCP um, uh, that, that does help knowing that that certification isn't just a paper test. You know, they, they had to actually perform some of these skills uh, to be able to get that certification. Uh, so some of those help, you know, and then you can spray your resume out to a dozen plus 
uh, companies, you know, without having to take each individual company's test. You know, may, maybe I'd forego the test for that person if I know that they they were able to pass the OSCP because that's a that's a pretty serious uh, endeavor. That definitely is, and I think um, we had Simon Lindstedt on um, the other part of this um, breaking into cybersecurity, and him as a junior thinking that he could go out and do the OSCP, um, that it really humbled him. Do you, do you do you often think that some of these boot camps and some of these training training academies are misrepresenting um, what they could truly? deliver to the candidates as a money grab, trying to get them to say, oh, we'll train you for the cert uh, for X $10,000 or whatever? Bootcamp and degree programs. Yeah. So, you know, I like to say that that stuff is useful to get your foot in the door, you know, as as kind of uh, in lieu of experience, you know, but but experience is still Honestly, if I, if I saw that somebody was doing security work pro bono for small businesses to get that experience versus going to a SANS course or something like that, you know, I, I know that person, you know, doing work for small businesses pro bono is going to have a lot more practical experience than somebody going and doing a, a SANS course. So the SANS person might have more knowledge, um, you know, but the actual experience of, no, I know I can't just do that because, you know, they're going to be down for a day. They won't be able to use their POS system. <laughs> it's going to shut their business down. Like, like that knowledge is, uh, is something that's tough to get across in a training class because it's, it, it's not real systems, real people, real money, real life, you know, and, and the human mind just, uh, you know, takes that, you know, memory works different when you, when you're experiencing it for real, you know, I mean, Gran Turismo, you know, isn't a replacement for a driving class in a real car. <laughs> I mean, it can teach you some things, certainly. Mm -hmm. I think I was more ready when I got into a car because I spent a lot of time in arcades uh, growing up, you know, playing games with actual steering wheels and pedals and stuff like that, you know, but but still it doesn't doesn't give you the feel of moving around two or three tons of metal and glass. And... I guess going back to one of the earlier things you said in regards to um, pen testing and knowing the impact that you would have when you're ha when you're testing on a certain system, w would you say that um, those that are potentially newer to the field and they don't understand the impact that manipulating those variables has on the business? That, that potentially is one of the main concerns for it being an entry-level role? Because while, yeah. while we grow in failures, um, we, we don't want it to happen all the time. Yeah, we see that in bug bounties too. You know, so, so a lot of the folks that participate in bug bounties will submit stuff and, and then get angry when, when it's uh, closed as, as a non-issue. You know, like they'll, they'll find some cross-site scripting somewhere. All they know is that the tool they're running said that this was... You know, like, like they don't kind of have that that concept of false positives down or that uh, the experience to be able to understand the logic behind the application and why that cross-site scripting bug is not a security risk. Um, so it's, um, yeah, we, we, we see that commonly there too. And it, it's just a recipe, you know, for, for disaster, you know, with, with a lot of clients. You know, I've seen a lot of arguments uh, um, 
emerge because of that. I, I, I've seen another thing is uh, there's some very good pen testers out there that have never worked on the enterprise side. Um, and I've actually seen pen testers ask to extend uh, uh, a gig just so that they could get an exploit working. Like there's zero value in it for the customer. Like it's just something they're that's selfish that they're doing for themselves just to have the satisfaction of pulling off that that exploit. And when we look at the real world, like when we look at the Verizon DBIR, you know, bad guys aren't exploiting stuff. Yeah, it's fairly rare. Um, I mean, it absolutely happens when there's some low hanging fruit out there. Like when, you know, the the exchange uh, vulnerability was out there. Absolutely, people will jump all over it. But generally, people aren't going to go out of their way to make an exploit work. You know, they're much happier to trick somebody into clicking a, a link in an email or something like that. So it's it's under understanding. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it's empathy in, in a way, and it's kind of emotional intelligence of understanding. You know, why have they hired me? What what is the purpose of my job? You know, what 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 are they going to get out of this pen test? And if it's, you know your own satisfaction in getting an exploit working like that. That's not what you're getting paid for. There shouldn't be do what that do you on your own time. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think um, as up and coming security folks, people who are, who are looking to break into the industry, what they should be focused on. What do you think they should be looking at? You know, if you could give them our audience some uh, advice Honestly, I've come around full circle in that uh, I I still think it's good to have a, a strong technical base. And, and the best way to get that, you know, especially in a um, um, if you're if you're going to go into the enterprise field and you're going to be in the position of telling other people in the enterprise, uh, you know, to fix their stuff, <laughs> you know, telling them, uh, you know, where they've made mistakes it's going to help you so much to have been in their shoes, you know, to, to understand their, their job and their role. So I, I think that's still, and I've been mentoring people and um, entry level and security seems almost non-existent anyway, right. you know, it, it, except for some of these sock jobs that are, Few you know, if, far between. If, if we're honest, it's our biggest entry level role. And it's also the most likely to burn people out. So is that really where we want to be sending people <laughs> if, if we want to grow this industry, you know, in, into a job that that's uninteresting, you know, it, it's it's grueling and you're not really learning anything doing it. You know, a lot of these entry level sock roles, you know, you're, you're a little more than a receptionist, you know, redirecting things different right. places, you know, oh, this goes in this bucket, this goes in this bucket, this goes in this bucket. Like that, that's not security anyway. Um like the things that you're putting in buckets are security related, but the job itself, you know, honestly, I think that level of the job just needs to go away and instead make those people apprentices, you know, make, make those junior roles, mm. um, make, make the bottom level, somebody who actually does some security analysis, who automates away some of that work that a level one would actually be doing. And, um, you know, cause the socks you see that are really successful, and some people would argue that that the sock is just a symptom of a problem and should go away anyway. Um, are ones that can automate away that that those boring tasks, you know, that mm -hmm. burn people out, you know, that that nobody wants to do anyway. Um, 
So I think that's what we should, we should be focused on, you know, is, is uh, making, like, you know, invent the entry level job and make it something, you know, that develops people, that develops their skills, uh, creates a pipeline for, for people and, and doesn't burn people out. I think it, it would be, it's just it's too short-sighted the it's way very short sighted it's totally short-sighted like i think what what you're describing sounds so um you know very similar to what they have going on in other industries like i it's always mind-boggling to me that there isn't a collective um you know two-year path or something where if, for example, Adrian, what you're describing, which I guess would be kind of an apprenticeship or whatever, but you kind of hire a person into a two-year kind of a contract, almost like how um, where there's rotation. So, for example, if you, you know, obviously they don't want to, mm-hmm. you don't want them deep down into networking, deep, deep, you know, like the, the SME in each space, but just understanding, um, you know, development, applications, um, uh, networking, like the areas that we need the most, where we need people the most, and then layer that with another rotation of some kind of um, growth in the role that they would be most interested in. So if you do a rotation of, and they used to have these like these MBA programs, I don't know if they still have that, where you do like a two-year rotation, they rotate you in marketing and put you in accounting, you know, finance, this, that, the third. And then at the end, it's like, hey, where do you want to go? And what of what out of all of this is very interesting, and that's the path into okay. Now you're going to be application security, still relatively junior, but you had two years of understanding all of this, and um, you got a baseline understanding of applications development, that kind of thing, so that when you come in, you at least know something <laughs> versus but zero. And your example is perfect. Growing a professional workforce is not a. You know, this is not the first time this has happened in, in humankind. <laughs> like, like we, we've solved the problem. You know, right. you're, you're, you're talking about, um, you know, doing rotations and things like that. You know, we, we've got countless other professionalized fields to draw on for how to build a professional workforce. Right. You know, by, I, th- I think some people in, in security and in some ways security, yes, it's unique and certain problems only we have, um, you know, but how to how to grow a professional workforce is not one of them. You know, a lot of these uh, these issues that we're running into are kind of self-imposed. And, mm-hmm. and all we have to do is look at another field and see how they they handle this. Right. You know, there are plenty of other fields that professionalized fields that have emerged in the last hundred years that that we can learn from. Even 30 know? years. I mean, yeah. IT as a whole, yeah. there, no, there were fine. rotational programs. There are rotational programs. Yeah. So one of the things I would do that reminds me uh, when I would hire somebody, um, and, and this is, you know, kind of a similar approach, but for a different purpose, uh, is before they get into any regular meetings, before they'd start their job, uh, first week or two weeks after hiring somebody, I would have them sit with people uh, in different roles around the business so that they would learn what we did, you know, as a business, what uh, different departments contributed to that business, mm-hmm. what applications they logged into, how they did their day-to-day job, because it would, it would do two things for them. It would give them perspective on why the business exists and how it runs. Uh, and also they would build rapport with people in these other departments that would benefit them throughout their job, uh, throughout their time working for that company. 
you know, and constantly you, I, I would see like these people I hired because I, I didn't have the benefit of that when I joined uh, that credit card processor. But everybody I hired, like when something would pop up that would have to do with a certain department, they would immediately knew, know somebody to go talk to and, right. and ask, a, ask a question about or they'd already know the answer because they spent their first week shadowing uh, with those people. I think the other thing that uh, that allows you to do is see a problem from a fresh perspective, right? Um, I, I remember first couple of weeks on the help desk and helping the business, they would go, oh, I do this because, and it's the workaround. So they're working around the, the self-imposed problem, either by security or by IT or mm -hmm. just to get their job done. And then when you can decompose that or you can see that, um, firsthand, you could go, why would they do this? And then how can we make this process better just by viewing what's happening as well? So perfect example, um, at the credit card processor, we had a uh, database administrator who specialized in, in improving performance of databases, you know, uh, changing configuration, stuff like that to improve performance. Once on a Thursday at like 1 p.m., she took down the main customer database, the main CMS, in, in the middle uh, of the day. And, and just didn't occur to her that, you know, 1,200 people were currently using it. And, and like the whole call center was down. They they basically had to tell people on the phone, uh, our systems are updating or whatever whatever line they give you when, when uh, things crash. Um, but yeah, she, she just, you know, to ap apply some settings, you know, some performance enhancements, uh, she needed to restart the database. So she just didn't, it just didn't occur to her that there were people on the outside of our door because we were even physically, IT was physically removed from the rest of the business. We physically could not see them. The door we came in and out every day uh, where we parked our cars, you never had to see any other people in the business. So, you know, I can kind of see how how you can forget that they exist, you know, and you know, again, going back to pen testers, you know, I, I think having that perspective, uh, um, you know, being able to see things from other people's perspectives is, is super, super important for so many parts of what we do. Like putting security controls into place. Oh, this just takes another two seconds. That's not a big deal. Well, if I have to do it 1300 times a day in my job working in the call center, two seconds adds up. <laughs> yes. Go ahead with the... Couple comments here. Well, Zoe, she says she, her new job is going great. She's at work right now, which is awesome. Uh, Steven said a lot of stock analyst roles are being relocated overseas, which is another point with the stock analysts. Um, and then Jimmy says, what would be one of, or asks, what would be one of the top things that would set apart someone applying for an entry level role as a stock analyst without experience? Um, ha having some experience. Um, so it doesn't even need to be in, in, in security. Um, so somebody who is like a manager at a Best Buy, you know, for, for a long time, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I know they have a lot of experience dealing with angry people, you know, like, like, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, uh, you, you know, understanding how to deal with, uh, with problems, how to solve problems, um, you know, it's not just security experience that's valuable in security. Uh, there, there are a lot of great interviews that have come out in the last couple months with Andy Ellis on, on a couple different podcasts. And he talks about how he hired people completely outside security into security roles. 
Like if he needed somebody to write a security report, um, he'd hire a journalist. If he needed somebody to educate people, internal employees on security, he'd hire a teacher. You know, so instead of thinking, what security person can I hire to do this security job? He's thinking, well, what is this job at its core? What, what are the requirements? If it's to educate someone, why wouldn't I hire an educator and then just teach them a little security? And even talking with, uh, with my friend Ryan Huber when he was over at Slack, you know, he was telling me moving in, and this was early on in, in the DevOps movement, which was just a complete flip of how we did everything in IT, uh, including how security got, got, uh, uh, got handled. And he would tell me it was easier to hire developers and teach them security than to hire security people and teach them, you know, uh, to solve a problem by writing a script when they ran into it instead of looking for a tool or, you know, they might not even see that it was a solvable problem. You know, but it's totally different. Go into a place where the security team all know how to write code. Very, very different vibe than in an organization where, uh, a tool, a, a commercial tool exists to do everything. You know, there's some places I've gone into where there's no one really doing security. You have a lot of operators, a lot of people who do the operation of tools, but nobody's really security minded or thinking about security. They're thinking, you know, I'm going to log into the SIM, the IDS, the whatever, and it's going to have a list of tasks for me to do. Speaking of code, um, there's a, a very popular poll that, that was on LinkedIn a couple couple days ago, maybe a week ago. Um, should coding be a requirement for security? Um, a requirement, you know, no. So I, I, I mean, you know, like I just said, you know, if I need somebody to teach security awareness full time to employees, they don't need to code. Um, so yeah, there's there's still roles where you don't need to code, like writing about the industry. When I was uh, an industry analyst. I didn't need coding skills to do that. But to get the experience to get to that point, I had to write a lot of code. <laughs> but um, in, in general, with like security engineering roles, you know, if engineering is anywhere in the title or the job requirement, um, absolutely. You know, even more so, like the vendors love to say when you ask the vendors if their product can do X, Y, or Z, you know, oftentimes they'll tell you, it's got an API, you can do anything you want. If you know how to code, you know, is, you know, and, and, you know, the response from most security teams is, well, nobody in our team can write code and we don't have five Python developers just sitting on their hands with nothing to do. So that doesn't help us security vendor. So absolutely. I, I, I mean, you're so much more valuable to an employer if you can, and again, you like, like you don't have to be you know, writing full applications, you're, you're not, you know, writing React front ends, you know, th this is the ability to automate something in Python or to write some shell scripts to, to automate jobs and things like that. Like that's a lot of the coding, which, I mean, you can really get up to speed on in two or three weeks, honestly. Like that's, that's one of those places where like a Python bootcamp is gonna be worth the, the money to add mm. to your skill set. Nice. Eric says here, communication is a key aspect for development of cybersecurity liaison roles and knowledge management. Very true. Eric. Yeah, we should we should rename soft skills to essential skills. Because mm -hmm. they're not soft at all. <laughs> they are not soft. It's necessary. 
Yeah. Uh, Eric says needing to write code should be seen as an opportunity to learn and educate, uh, not a showstopper. It depends it, it, on where you're going. Like, like some yeah. businesses have hundred percent going to be a showstopper. You know, like if, if you're going into a large financial institution, you can get away with not having coding skills because they're happy to, to hire, you know, a couple hundred security people. Mm -hmm. Um, but pretty much anywhere else, you know, like, like especially any kind of new tech company, anybody doing DevOps, anything like that, got to have it. So, so it, it depends on where you're applying. What are your thoughts on uh, developing auxiliary roles like GRC, security awareness, other type of analyst type roles like um, threat intelligence analysts or all source intelligence analysts that are just gathering information and relaying it to the business? Um, what are your your thoughts on growing the pipelines for those areas? Because you don't often or those roles aren't often taken into consideration uh, when we're building a security team. You think the SOC, the pen tester, but these are all roles that are critical as part of security operations as a whole. Honestly, you know, like a lot of my favorite people to hire for those roles won't have uh, a traditional security background. Um, you know, for intelligence, you know, ton, tons of great people coming out of the military with those mindsets, you know, that, that can do that kind of stuff. Um, you know, GRC, you know, some, some of the analyst roles, uh, anybody who's worked in loss prevention, you know, or any kind of fraud department, you know, within like a, a large financial institution, uh, something like that uh, has a great mind for that kind of work. Um, yeah, I mean, you don't necessarily have to hire uh, security roles uh, for, for that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of those skills are best developed outside of security uh, in, in various different places. Because again, a lot of those places, it's easier to get that thinking down that, that you need to understand what the goal is in that role, how you can be effective in that role. Like in fraud, you know, it's very straightforward. You know, it's, it's most loss prevention fraud departments understand um, prioritization, you know, the, the, the importance of prioritizing the data that you've got because you'll never have time to go through it all. So almost all fraud or loss prevention departments will have some kind of cutoff, like any fraud under 400 bucks, you know, we're not going to worry about, you know, we're just going to focus on the big stuff. Um, and in a lot of security teams, if, if you have somebody without that kind of background, you know, because it's not money, they don't think of it that way, you know, and, and they, they try and go through everything. And, you know, you're lucky if you cover 2% of the numeric stuff, but if you prioritize it, you know, maybe you can cover 98% of the risk, you know, while only covering, you know, 2% of the actual alerts. I'm thinking of those transferable skills. Um, how does someone highlight them in a way to make themselves attractive to a hiring manager? Uh, I, I think that's tougher. I think that's something where, you know, hiring managers and recruiters uh, can pull in there. Often when I'm working, or, or mentors also, uh, working with a lot of my mentees, um, I'll interview them, I'll talk to them about their life experiences and things like that. And uh, almost every time something comes up that I feel like should be highlighted on their on their CV or their resume that um, they wouldn't have even thought to put on there. Uh, you know, to me, knowing what kind of skills are needed in those roles, um, you know, it, it jumps out right at me, you know, so you really need, uh, you know, somebody that has experience in the field 
you know, to, to not only just look over the resume, but to interview them, figure out what didn't make it on the resume that should be on there. Earlier, you talked about the networking component, like at the very beginning when you did the, your introduction uh, yeah. um, <laughs> and talked about, you know, how people, how, how you got your first job and mm-hmm. how someone, you know, that person that you went on to work um, again for that individual. So can you, we have a couple minutes left. Um, I think this would, this would be a good wrap up um, component talking about, talking to folks about how um, important networking is in trying to get into this industry. Yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of ways to go about it, you know, so I, I, I don't think it was, so one of my mentors actually, um, uh, Dave Shackelford is the one that, um, that really got this across to me, really encouraged me to get on Twitter back in 2008, 2009, uh, you know, and to get more involved in the, in the community. And, and that's really the easiest way, I think, to build your network. I mean, some of it's going to happen naturally as you work in different jobs, you work with different people. Uh, I live in, in Knoxville, Tennessee, and in East Tennessee, it's a small world with cybersecurity. Most people have cycled through the, the same businesses headquartered in the area. You know, probably most uh, smaller metro, metro areas are like that. You know, Oak Ridge National Labs is 15 minutes away from me, you know, and, and they've got a sizable security team. So a lot of people have worked there. Uh, but you can absolutely boost up that network um, by getting more involved in community stuff, uh, Discord servers, asking for people to mentor you, asking questions in different places. Uh, podcasts like this, uh, you know, great place to, to ask questions, to, to get to know people. Uh, before you know it, you're connected to a bunch more people on LinkedIn and, and you have a network like that. You know, so, you know, if people understand you and what your skill set, skill set is, and they've talked to you, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, they, they understand that, you know, you know, the industry, they know what, you know, you're going to come up when they're looking to hire, you know, or if somebody else is looking to hire, they're going to mention to them, Hey, I'm looking for somebody with, uh, X, Y, and Z skills, you know, and, um, you know, if that's someone that you talk to often, you know, you're going to be, you know, kind of top of mind with them, you know, so it's, 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 um, you know, that's really important too, is, uh, you know, especially as we're working from home is, uh, you know, talking to people on a regular basis, you know, engaging in, in some of this virtual online stuff as well, you know, getting your name out there. So it's, it's almost like marketing. It's, it's like promoting yourself as a brand uh, it is really, really effective. I think every job that I've had, um, from pretty much 2000, 2012 on has either come from people I've known on Twitter or people I've, I've known online, you know, oftentimes never met in, in, in person. In person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, so, so much knowledge. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, just to kind of hone in on that networking point, that's how I met Adrian um, online in, uh, in a, a really group. great, yeah. really great Slack group. Um, it's that... much more than a Slack group. But... <laughs> yes, we're, we're we're a network of um, tinkering individuals. But um, yeah, uh, really appreciate your support and coming on and joining Renee and I today. Yeah, Absolutely, no, it's my pleasure. Adrian. No, it was hey. such a pleasure having you on. And I mean, this is how Chris and I met on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't meet each other in person until what a year and a half in something like that. Yeah, we've yeah. been doing the show for 
a year before we met in person. So it's so very important. So thank you so much, Adrian, for coming on. Thank you, Chris, for making this happen. And, um, you know, for everyone, all our audience members out here, we'll see you with another CISO Thursday next week. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone.